Welcome to Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 260 for March the 17th, 2017. I'm Chester Wisniewski, back this week with Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. You just finished up at B-Sides, haven't you? So it's been a busy week for you. Yeah, absolutely. We had an incredibly successful conference and and, uh, being one of the organizers, unfortunately, I was not able to absorb all of the great technical content, but we'll be publishing that all on YouTube uh, in the near future. So maybe we'll, uh, when, that, when those videos and things go up, we'll uh, let the Chat Chat listeners know as well. We had some fantastic speakers and content and uh, in the spirit of B-Sides, want to make sure that's available to the community. Excellent. I probably should have said B-Sides Vancouver to make it clear why this was a super special one for you. Not just any B-Sides, but your, your home ground. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it was, uh, it's one of the larger B-sides in North America these days. We had over 350 attendees and we had quite a, quite a presence from Sophos with us having such a large office here. So uh, it, it, was, it was quite a lot of fun. And uh, it's, it's funny. So, you know, getting ready for the podcast, I started looking at uh, the, the email topics you'd sent over to suggest that we might chat about this week. And I saw the first one and something about Twitter and swastikas. And I'm like, okay, so what are you telling me? This is nothing new. There's jerks on Twitter. <laughs> but apparently this one was was actually not just people being uh, uh, inconsiderate on Twitter. This was some sort of a hack. As far as we know, a third-party Twitter app or Twitter service called Twitter Counter which you can authorize essentially to have access to your account for Twitter analytics. Apparently they got hacked. We don't know what happened. Maybe someone got their API key. Maybe someone was able to change some of the scripts that run on their servers to do stuff with their customers' accounts. And lo and behold, loads and loads of accounts were tweeting out this very offensive tweet, some kind of Turkish political message calling Dutch and German people Nazis, uh, swastika in the message. Some people had their profile pictures on Twitter changed to Turkish flag. So uh, it was it's like a bit of a political maneuver. And even an organization like Amnesty International, you wouldn't expect to hear them calling Dutch people Nazis, but they were one of the accounts that got caught out. Fortunately, it's quickly dealt with. Twitter was able to remove all the illegally sent out tweets But it's a big, big reminder that when you authorize some third party service to do tweets or whatever it is, whatever social media service it is, when you authorize that service to operate on your behalf, it can do it even when you're logged out from that service yourself. In other words, they don't need to know your password. They just need an authorization token that lets them go and do stuff as if they were you. Yeah, and that's that's an important point, I think, here in that uh, I've played with quite a few of these analytics services and things like this, and I've not used several of them because they request the right to publish tweets. So I understand that, you know, this service is designed to help you do some analytics of, you know, your followers and how many of your followers are real or fake or people clicking your links and this type of thing. And to me, that service doesn't seem like it needs to be able to tweet on your behalf. Now, I, I guess there there could be optional uh, things in it to say, oh, if I get 150 you know, new followers in a week, send out a tweet saying thank you to my 150 new followers or something. But I don't want that, right? I don't want anything having the right to tweet on my account aside from Twitter or uh, people that follow me probably notice I may that I used Hootsuite. So I've, I've invested that trust in Hootsuite. But I guess I could, I could get caught up in this just as easily if Hootsuite were compromised, right? So it's really important to evaluate the security of these organizations if you give them that power. 
The other thing that we, we warned people about on naked security, and we had a couple of comments come back saying, golly, thanks for that advice. I took it and I went in and you were jolly well right. There were all these apps that I'd kind of forgotten about. And of course, when I went in and reviewed them, went to the settings and privacy page on Twitter, I saw these apps and thought, golly, those don't need this power anymore. And I revoked their access. We've given some screenshots on Naked Security that show you how to do this. It's not obvious how you go and review which other people are able to read and tweet on your behalf. And the same is true with lots of other social media sites. Facebook's a good example. Yeah, I don't, you know, sometimes you don't remember why you did something. And uh, I think uh, I, was, I was actually speaking to an analyst earlier today about uh, malicious mobile apps on Android. And I said, you know, I think that's a way that people on Android get themselves in trouble sometimes is they, they check that checkbox to allow the side loading of a non-marketplace app just for a minute, right? Oh, I want to load Amazon Alexa from the Amazon store on my Android phone. So I'll, I'll just enable that third party thing. And then they forget to go uncheck it. And then when APKs get shoved down into the browser because of some kind of an exploit out there, their phone gets compromised, right? So it's really, it's hard to want to go back and review all those settings all the time, but it's critical. Yes, it would be, it would be fussy, but kind of nice if some of these options where you know you're going to use them very infrequently, if they had a this will only work for a while. Yes, I want to sideload apps on my Android, but unless I come back in and reaffirm this, in one hour, I want this to go away. Just in case I forget to turn it off. Now, as I was heading out of the office on Friday, uh, I started reading about a, a new zero-day vulnerability. And of course, that's always a, a bad sign on a Friday afternoon, knowing we're going into the weekend where that may start seeing more widespread exploitation. <laughs> and where every hacksaw in the world goes, hey, I've got the weekend to try and work out my own proof of concept that I can publish on my blog to show how cool I am. Well, of course, like like previous ones, the this this one was, was named. It's called CVE 2017 5 six three eight so not quite as uh, uh doesn't roll off the tongue like a uh, cloud bleed but nonetheless i was i was kind of dual happy about this i was like uh this is kind of nice to see that it's just you know doesn't have a logo and a brand name but on the other hand i got a little scared going i hope everybody pays attention to this because it's really critical and maybe if it had a logo and a brand name we'd take it more seriously uh i haven't heard of any mass exploitation causing a lot of damage though so I guess the right people were listening. Yes, I did see a story which suggested that, was it Statistics Canada had noticed that somebody had obviously tried this out on their server, but it was sort of data that was, if you like, crown copyright anyway. So in other words, stuff that had already been published and was supposed to be out there. Whereas the Canada Revenue Agency, if you remember, they were, they were famously attacked by some youngster who wanted to prove how clever he was with Heartbleed. Uh, he got into loads of trouble over that, and they realised, gosh, this is, you know, this proves that you need to react quickly. This time, even though my understanding it's kind of tax filing season in Canada, they decided that they'd actually take any vulnerable parts of their network offline over the weekend, fix everything, and then bring it all back up. My take on that was if Canada Revenue Agency can actually interrupt regular service to do an emergency patch in the middle of tax filing season then anybody can. And this idea that, oh, no, well, we'll put it off for a day, a week, a month, a year. If CRA can do it, you can jolly well do it. That was my, that was the way I saw that. 
Yeah, I was quite impressed. And uh, next time I speak with uh, the people I know within the government here in Canada, I will applaud them for uh, being on top of things and and and, and not only uh, being aware of the problem but taking an action. But we haven't really talked about the vulnerability. Let's talk about it for a minute. It, it's uh, an Apache Struts 2 vulnerability. And Correct. Like the words Java and JavaScript, I want to caution people that the word Apache is simply a, a foundation. It's not just the Apache HTTP server, which is the most probably the most popular web server in the world. There's a lot of different Apache projects other than the HTTP server, and this is one of those projects. So it's not every Apache installation in the world. It's ones that are using this, would you call it Java middleware? How would you describe it exactly, Doug? Yes. I didn't think of the word middleware when I wrote the Naked Security article about it. That's probably a, a word that lots of people would have understood, actually. It's a, a a script component that's triggered by the web server that generates web content, say, from backend databases on the fly. Many, many sites these days use PHP for that purpose. Struts, Struts 2, the vulnerable version, is essentially the same sort of thing, but the language, the programming language you use to do that middleware, as you say, is Java. And I guess the dangerous part in this case was that uh, by simply interacting with uh, Struts 2 hosted forms, that the data from those forms is processed by Struts, then you could include some uh, additional programming language code and it would get, uh, it would actually interpret that and execute that code as opposed to simply taking a form input. I guess this is a parsing vulnerability of some sort. It's actually in the content type header between the post request where where you're sending in what's supposedly the, the form you've just completed online and the actual body content, which is your replies. And the content type for a struts to uploaded form is supposed to be uh, multi-part slash form dash data. And if that isn't the content type, then what the struts to uploader does is it says, oh, well, let me turn it into a meaningful error message that I can send back to say what went wrong. And ironically, you provoke an error in the hope that struts 2's attempt to respond to the error in a meaningful way will cause it to run some Java code in the background. And of course, it's running on the server, not in your browser. And there was a proof of concept running around there, which with one line of curl, uh, sending the right header to the right page on a website, you could get it to dump the Etsy password file, which would A, leak usernames, and B, prove that the site was vulnerable. So I guess uh, it's a good thing to check your systems for the presence of uh, Struts 2 being installed, especially in, I imagine, in Linux environments where it's going to be most commonly found, and uh, to check with your application vendors if it's not uh, home-built code that you can check with your developers to see whether that's in use and make sure that you... Uh, immediately apply a, a fix for this. But, uh, you know, I know in a lot of organizations, it's difficult coming into the end of a quarter to to make code changes. So you may also want to check with your firewall or IPS vendors to see if there are uh, mitigations in, in IPS rules, et cetera, that can help detect uh, attempts at exploiting your applications. Yes, I know we don't normally mention products, but the Sophos XG firewall, we have some IPS rules which will look for this booby-trapped content type header. And, you know, you're talking about quarter end and that. I'll just reiterate, if the CRA could do it, you can do it. 
On to the next story. I mean, anytime you're doing something nefarious, you typically don't want people to notice what you're up to. And in particular, it looks oh, like... Oh, no. <laughs> I know where you're going with this. <laughs> well, yeah, the CIA and their Vault 7 uh, issue with uh, the WikiLeaks. Chester, here's the thing. What, what's, what happened to Vault 0 to Vault 6? Where did they go? That you're going to have to ask Mr. Assange, and I, I suspect you feel in a similar way that I do about him, and uh, maybe that, that that may not be forthcoming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the big story in it from a computer security point of view, or in particular for security products, in particular antivirus products, was that somebody found that there's a page in there where the CIA detailed this this project they had called, allegedly called, Fine Dining. And as far as we can see, the reason for that metaphor is that, you know, most fine dining restaurants have a dress code. So if you're going to show up, but you don't really belong there, you'd still better dress smartly, right? And that's the whole idea. They were figuring if they had a field agent and this person already had access to a company or an organization, already had access to the network, was trusted to bring stuff in, but they wanted to go in there and run a program that was actually up to no good. If there was something good on the screen, just like the boss key in the old DOS games in the 1990s, then people would kind of probably think that everything was okay. And so the CIA had devised this project where a field agent could contact head office or whatever they call it. And allegedly you could get somebody else's app and want there were 24 on the list one of them in fact was the sophos virus removal tool it's almost a backhanded compliment to be figured to be trustworthy enough that people will see it and go oh that's okay and what they do is they pack it they they provide our genuine product say on a usb stick and while you were running our product and there were various other products in there i think something from Microsoft, from Kaspersky, the, the VLC video player, the Notepad++ editor, a whole list of files, stuff that techies might have along with them. And in amongst that, they'd, they'd, have, this, they'd have this background app which would do the dirty work while the decoy app ran in the front. That was the story of the week last week. Fine dining, courtesy of the CIA, allegedly. Yeah, I'll, I'll try not to use too many of the code names that were disclosed uh, because um, I've started referring to Windows as Bartender and Macintosh as, uh, I believe it was Jukebox. Bartender. Yes. <laughs> Where does that come from? Like Jukebox, maybe that's because, you know, lots of Apple people got into the Mac scene maybe through the iPod. Uh, I'm stretching here. I don't know, really know why. Maybe they just have a giant list of words and they pick them completely at random. No, I think that's the NSA you'll find. Uh, you know, Egotistical Giraffe was one of the NSA code names. I think the CIA ones seem to be more handpicked. That They sound like a funner bunch. So if you're looking at working in the clandestine services in the United States, it looks <laughs> like you'll have a better time at CIA than NSA. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Our last story is about a little bit of a sense of community. And uh, to me, I, I was thinking about B-Sides again, and that's uh, kind of the whole purpose of the the grassroots organizing of things like B-Sides. And in this case, we're talking about, well, rather strange bedfellows in a certain way. We're looking at companies like Google, but also uh, uh, other other people in the same space like Microsoft and I believe Apple and some others um, even Amazon. So normally you would consider them arch rivals, and yet they found some common ground uh, trying to uh, determine uh, the legal precedent in the United States around 
the, the power of the subpoena and whether American companies storing data overseas need to bring it home at the, at the behest of the government whenever they have a legal uh, court order. Yes, uh, uh, you're right. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon and Cisco, I believe, is the list. And they've, they've filed this thing, you know, it's called an amicus. That's Latin word for friend, amicus brief, which means, yeah, we, we, we want the court to recognize that we agree with, with these other guys, in this case, Google. In other words, they're kind of saying if we were in Google's position, we'd be making exactly the same argument. And we saw that same, the same sort of common cause, didn't we, um, with Apple over the whole, the, the famous San Bernardino iPhone of a lot of companies, you know, including Sophos coming out and saying, we think the idea of cryptographic backdoors, it's a bad idea on all grounds. For the common good, we're actually agreeing with somebody that we might otherwise see as a competitor. Well, these types of court decisions could have uh, far-reaching economic uh, um, impacts on these companies as well. And that, you know, we've already seen a, a large shakeup in the trust of American companies with regard to spying after the NSA leaks from Ed Snowden. And I know in my, my experiences traveling around the world, many organizations are very careful about whose cloud are you using and where is that data being stored? And there's a lot of suspicion being cast toward American companies and if the courts were to rule against Google and demand that they move data from Europe and bring it back to the United States so that it could be searched, which is pretty much the government's argument is, uh, we're not searching data overseas, that would be illegal. We'll just make you move the data to the United States and then we'll legally search it. Uh, that has a big impact on, on, on any uh, company in the United States that's providing a cloud-hosted service, right? Because most of our tweets, our Facebook posts, our Instagrams, uh, and certainly the vast majority of the average public's uh, email uh, is stored in some manner in that way and uh, uh, could have a real chilling effect for American companies. So it'll be very interesting to see what the outcomes of this are. I mean, my my reaction as, a, as someone who is kind of a privacy advocate is don't put things in email that, that are sensitive or need to be protected unless they're encrypted. I mean, it, this comes back to the Yahoo breach, whether the FSB was involved or not. You know, we keep hearing about these types of problems, whether they're legal or not legal. Either way, my data, if it's stored in a cloud-based email service, is likely able to be compromised either through a, a, a court order or through a hacker. And if it's truly sensitive information, it probably doesn't belong in the email box. Well, I think you and I have said this many times inside the podcast and outside. The nice thing about encrypting everything and just getting in the habit of doing that is you never have to worry that you actually forgot to encrypt the one thing that really needed it. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and uh, I'm I know that I'm I'm losing my edge when I don't catch myself at least once a week not hitting the send button going, oh, I'm not sure I want that in my mailbox. Uh, I I think that's a good habit to get yourself into as well. Uh, You know, think twice before you press send, no difference than thinking twice before you click that link in an unsolicited email. Absolutely. And on that note, we'll conclude Sofa Security Chat Chat 260. As always, our latest podcasts are always on iTunes. They're in the Google Play Store, in the TuneIn app and on soundcloud.com slash sofa security. And until next time, stay secure.